cliffcentral.com. I've got to admit, just um, hearing George uh, talking about in the Auto Trader podcast, talking about you know Formula One, I I don't even. It sounds like a different language to me when they talk about this stuff. I just don't even know what they are. What what are you talking about? Who are these people? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm so out of my depth. Ah, <laughs> Gareth. I'm so out of my. You depth. know, talking. Talking about like a different language, something I can't believe we didn't have this in the news before we bring uh, before we bring our guest on. I can't mm. believe we didn't talk about this. Maybe it's a good way to start the the segment of the show. Mm-hmm. I cannot believe we didn't talk about Maya Papas because yesterday they put out a statement that his municipality is now debt free. Oh, the DA municipality in uh, what Umgeni? Umgeni, Umgeni. Mm. Very good. So That's not only is good. he cute, he's doing the work out there. He's doing well, the work. And I, I, I know, you know, I know. I Dor- be, that is a good news story that we yeah, could have that put is, in our That's world. a great news story, and I'm glad you brought it up. And we are trying to get him on the show because um, he's he just turned. Then we can have a whole Zulu uh, burning platform. <laughs> yeah, I'll be Me the only him. one. We'll I'll be the only one who can't speak. Platform. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but very good. I'm glad you mentioned that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to bring on our guest for this morning. She is no stranger to the burning platform. In fact, she was on the show uh, just before she was elected as mayor, and um, we're very pleased to have her back on today. She is Mpopalatse, who was elected to the position of executive mayor of the city of Joburg on the 22nd of November 2021. She served for 10 months until September of this year. She's the first woman to serve as mayor. She was um, the first black woman to serve as mayor, and the second female mayor of the city after Jessie McPherson, who served from 1945 to 1946. Um, in September of this year, she was removed as mayor through a vote of no confidence in a special sitting of the council, and she actually went to court this week to fight this. Um, Popalatse, it's very good to have you on. I know that your camera is not working. You've got surprise load shedding. Uh, this is one of the things about living in Joburg. Unfortunately, yes. Um, and unfortunately, we were working on this. Uh, we were about to get independent power producers on board. In the month of October, we were getting ready to send out a request for proposals. I just hope that that work continues. Joba can't afford to have load shedding. Good morning to you, and thanks Good for morning. having me. Good morning, Paul. Okay, so first of all, uh, how did the court case go, and um, and what are you expecting, and are we are we moving in the right direction there, in your opinion? I think it went really well. Uh, I was quite positive when I left. Uh, obviously, judgment has been reserved for now, so we're still waiting for an outcome. Mm-hmm. But just judging from both submissions, I think we have a very strong case. So, yes, I'm positive that we'll have a favorable outcome. Okay. I, I, I went to I think, a, Sorry, Pums. I went Gareth, to a, I maybe went to let's a, talk a, bit, a little bit about, about the case. Okay. Um, morning, Paul. And I think – tell us about your case – Guys, look who's just walked in. Now, come say hi because we have to set up a. Co- they can't really say hi. Who's this? It is Canton. Canton. Oh, very good. It is Canton who has just walked in. Okay, he is. Good. Yay. All right, Canton Pele. So uh, let me just go to Pumi's question then. She wanted to know more about the case itself. What- yes. So tell us about the case. What is what is the the gist of the case and what outcome you know we know that you're hoping to be reinstalled but what is the what's your argument so council is subject to a legal framework we subject to the constitution we subject to the structures act we subject to the rules of council and everything we do must align with the legal framework now what happened on the 29th and the 30th of september unfortunately did not consider the legal framework, a lot of illegal activities, a series of them, led to my illegal and unlawful removal and the unlawful election of the new mayor. Um, one, there is a programming committee in council. It is then a, a Section 79 committee of council, and that committee is representative. In other words, it's got councillors from various political parties, and it sits to make decisions on what the agenda for council looks like. It considers reports, considers legality and admissibility of motions and and various other agenda items. And one, you had an uh, um, incorporate programming meeting. So you did not have quorum. The notice was very short. I think it was about a three-hour notice for that programming meeting. 
um, reports had not been circulated. There was an inadmissible motion that was brought to that programming meeting, a motion that, 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 that that they used to ask me, hmm. which had served at a previous um, programming meeting and was deep in it. Listen, uh, Paul, I'm just going to I'm going to ask you a big favor. We, you sound you sound horrible on this line. I'm just going to let uh, Simpiwa get you back on, because uh, it's breaking up really badly. And I know that you've got no electricity where you are, which is why we can't turn on your camera either. Um, but we'll try and get you back on. It sounds really bad. Yeah, because I think it's important to understand the. Because it, it is a procedural, I, it, reading up about it, uh, trying to understand all of the stuff that is um, going on and being asserted, you know, there's a conversation to be had about a how much power the judiciary has in this respect and how much power the voter has. And so it's important to understand what the, for me, I think our listeners need to understand the procedural aspect of what it is that impose fighting, because what she's fighting is about procedure. And I'd really like to hear what her views yeah, and, are and, and about. Also, I'd, I'd like to ask, so if, if the procedure didn't work out this time, what's to stop them from just doing another vote of no confidence once she wins this case? You know, it installs herself back in and there are enough people to say, well, we want to throw you out again. Uh, Paul, are you back? There we go. Let's see if that's any better. Paul, can you hear me? I can. There we go. I can much, hear much you. Better. Can you hear me? Yeah, much better. Yeah, much better. Uh, I must quickly tell you, Paul, before you answer Pumi's question, and I know you were halfway through your answer when we cut you off, um, I was at a dinner on Wednesday, and, and David Gower, the comedian, said uh, he loves Joburg, and it's such an interesting place. We're the only city in the whole world where the mayor arrived in a, in a blue light brigade and left by Uber. Um, and I thought that was pretty hilarious. Do you, do you get a lot of the, do you get a lot of that in your social media at the moment? <laughs> no, not at all. And actually, it's not even accurate. You don't leave by Uber. You do get dropped off. And I had my security detail for another two days. In fact, if you look at the Copter Mayoral Handbook, you're supposed to have it for a month. But oh. I did let it go. Okay. Yeah. So it's but I get it. It's very funny. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, what's to stop the the people who ousted you this time in in the vote of no confidence from just doing it again and following procedure the next time? Nothing stops them from doing that. Uh, it is a democratic process that they're entitled to. I don't have issues with that. The only issue I had was the legality of the ousting and the, the, the legality of the election of a new mayor. That was the only thing I was questioning. So should they bring it back, which I know they're already planning to bring it back, um, that's fine. That process must unfold. We'll see what the numbers say. If I'm ousted legally, then I will accept I've been ousted legally. Okay. All right. How much how much progress did you make in those few months when you were mayor? Uh, and again, I can I can hear your line deteriorating over there, but we'll give it a try anyway. So in ten months, how much progress did we make? We made a lot of progress, and that's why this is so unfortunate because we're seeing it being undone already just in the last two weeks. So we had we had set out seven mayoral priorities. The first one focusing on getting the basics right um getting our electricity supply stable was was very top on, on our agenda we had a two-day energy in Daba in may very successful where we invited the private sector to come and partner with the city to stabilize our energy supply and through a series of, of events from then on we were about to issue a request for proposals this month in october to invite them officially to to partner with the city this was going to offset local shedding, it was going to stabilize supply, it was going to go to areas that did not have supply previously, and so on and so forth, and hopefully also bring down on the price of electricity. So that was quite a big win for us. Um, in terms of water, we also invested quite heavily in the water infrastructure. As you know, there's a water crisis currently in the city, and a lot of it has to do with the infrastructure backlog. So we had really in our budget yeah. that kicked in on the 1st of July, invested quite heavily in starting to address that, but we're also looking at partnering with the private sector. So there, there was quite some developments through our triple P office <clears> in that regard. In terms of cleanliness, you would have heard that the inner city was starting to look much cleaner. We had relaunched Addison, which is our monthly cleanup campaign. 
and we've been to various yeah. regions already. Uh, and Paul, again, uh, okay, uh, yeah. I'm really sorry, Paul, but this line is absolutely awful. We're going to have to try and get you on one more time and then call it quits. But while we're trying to sort that out, uh, let me welcome the man who just uh, pitched up in studio. You see, he's uh, he, he's so at home here. He just he comes and goes as he likes, but he's important enough to be able to get away with that. Canton Pile, how are you, Canton? Morning, guys. Good to be back here in in person. <laughs> it's good to see you. I'm the only one who's not in my studio. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, suddenly, you've both gone dead. Uh, Simpiwe, why are the mics on mute? Hello, hello, hello. No, my mic, oh. my mic was on mute because because we're both here. See. Ah, so, okay. Oh, Simpiwe right. sorted it out. Simpiwe ah. sorted it out. He right. sorted me out. Okay. I see Simpiwe has got one of these new Roadcaster Pros, and it looks really cool. Yeah, no, we, we had to we had to get some new equipment, make sure that we were you know up to up to date and up to standard. So, all right, Canton, if we if we do manage to get um, Paul back, it'll be good to have her on because I'm sure there's still lots of questions. We only really scratched the surface, so we'll we'll prioritize her. And then I've got a few questions for you, and there's lots of things that the listeners want to ask you because you've been absent for some time now and there's plenty of international stuff we want to get into. I'm going to try one more time. Mpopalatse, here she is. And Pumi, you get to go. Pumi, you can ask. You can go Can you hear us? Yes, I can, okay. I can hear you. Yeah. Hallelujah. Mpo, I, I think then the, for me the most important question is from your experience with the coalition – what is the biggest lesson that has been your takeout working within a coalition? Because we're having lots of conversations about coalitions, even perhaps going into the national election, that there might be need for coalitions. What's your biggest lesson? Well, I'll be honest in saying that governing in a coalition is not easy. It's certainly a lot harder than what it takes to govern if you have an outright majority. It takes a lot of work, a lot of investment of your time, and just a lot of relationship building, you know, with every decision you have to make, you have to consult so many times. Um, we had nine political parties in our coalition, so you can imagine the, the level of consultation and, and just the extent of it. So um, I think for me that was quite a challenge, just from a time management and being able to move forward rapidly point of view. The city is broken. It needs a rapid response to rebuild and repair it. And I've just found a lot of times that we spent quite a bit of time in, in deliberating and finding each other and reaching consensus. So that for me was quite frustrating. I think we need to find a better way to 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 be able to work a lot quicker, you know, in spite of the number of political parties that are co-governing. We need to get to decisions a lot quicker. So that was for me a, an area that I think definitely needs work. Also, just aligning the legal framework of the country, the city, with coalition agreements. I think coalition agreements are great. Um, I do think that the, it's very important to look at, for instance, aligning the mayoral delegations with the coalition agreements and so on. So here's, here's an example of what I'm trying to say here. You've got different political parties. They are effectively in partnership, but they're also at the same time contesting for a their share of the voter market ahead of the 2024 elections, as an example. There's a need to showcase your your performance as a political Paul, party, to show differentiation from other political Paris, parties. Paris, I think yeah, we're going to have to I'm try sorry. this we, at another what? time. Um, Paul, I'm going to have to... Paul must come, come yeah. to the studio like Canton. Yeah, please. Uh, this is a disaster. So I'm, I'm afraid we're just going to... And it's not, I mean, it's not her fault that she had load shedding this morning and that there's obviously no signal and it's deteriorating. God knows what else. But um, the conversation with Mpo is about as frustrating for a Joburg resident as having a government at municipal level that can actually deliver. So we'll just leave it at that for this morning. All right. Well, look at Canton. Here he is. He's in the studio. We've got lots of things we want to talk to him about. So this is by no means a, a B team. Um, people often ask where you are. And I know that you've got dad duties and you've got businesses that you're, you're running and all kinds of things. But I'm glad to have and you traveling. in the studio today. And traveling. You're all over the country and continent. So, Canton, uh, what's on your mind at the moment? What are you most interested in right now? Because we, Pumi and I were talking this morning about a multi, you know, multiplicity of issues. We were talking about the ministerial handbook story. We obviously had to bring up ESCOM as, as, as the case. I mean, it's the word of the year, by the way. 
Um, the dictionary has declared load shedding in South Africa the word of the year. No surprises there. And we've got lots of other stories to talk about. Jacob Zuma, obviously, Pumi was very um, interested in the way he was dancing around last week as if everything's fine again. Um, what, are you, what are you most interested in? I'm quite interested that Jacob Zuma seems to have miraculously recovered from whatever illness yeah. um, was besetting him. Yeah. But, uh, guys, before we move on from uh, uh, Dr. Mpopa Palazzi, one of the questions that uh, I'd uh, raised and have messaged Helen Zilla about this as well is why do we not craft coalition agreements so that there are real financial consequences if people actually end up breaking these agreements? Because essentially you write into the coalition agreements that if any person ends up voting to break the coalition agreement, that they, they become personally financially liable to be able to pay pay a compensation. And it's it's just a thought that I'm tossing out there because, you see, one of the issues that we have right now, and this is critical in terms of the way in which the country as a whole gets run, we don't have any personal consequences for dereliction of duty. So just think across the board. You know, you have uh, our our minister of, uh, uh, our purported minister of of tourism who is busy uh, not doing anything about tourism there's no accountability. What are you talking about? She's on, she's on tour to the Northern Cape. Yes. <laughs> she's hosting a block party. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, well, isn't this true right across the board? I mean, you know, from Cyril all the way down, there are no consequences for people who don't do their job. Correct. But it's really difficult to enforce those consequences at a parliamentary level. But in terms of coalition agreements, which theoretically are meant to be legally binding agreements between various parties. And, you know, in exactly the same way as when you have businesses that enter into deals and if there's, uh, you know, bad faith on the part of one of the parties that ends up in the agreement being broken for reasons of bad faith, one can put in financial consequences as a result of that. And why is this not the case in terms of coalition agreements? So, you know, clearly... I've never been party to negotiating a coalition agreement. This is going to be something for the lawyers to have to take a look at. But I think it's an idea that whose time has come, really, because we can't have a scenario where entire cities get held hostage Mm -hmm. simply because a handful of people end up changing sides because of money. Yeah, and, and jockeying for power. I mean, it's the same. It's the same with all these people who are constantly going to court, and I don't mean poor here. Although it could count for any case where a politician is fighting other politicians, they must be paying for that from their own money. They shouldn't be allowed to use whether it's the former president, or whether it's a, an MP, or whether it's a municipal mayor, or whoever else. They shouldn't be able to use state money to to fight legal battles. I, I would like at least a percentage of any of these legal costs to be paid by them. And you'll suddenly see a whole lot less cases clogging up the system. I'm pretty sure of that. Eli, I think the thing, though, with the coalition uh, falling apart here in Joburg, and Paul alluded to it when she was answering the question, is it? it's about, it's in the feet, right? You've got to get people and coral people to your side when the voting comes. I was quite intrigued, even with Paul's fight uh, with the council, how she made a Twitter video to tell us all about this seating. And I'm like, no, don't talk to us. We can't do anything about it. We've already voted. And the voters here in Joburg mm. obviously had no faith in any of them. That's why none of them got enough yeah. uh, of a mandate to be able to, to wrangle the council, right, is you have to talk to each other. Those coalition agreements, <laughs> can't then, even if they had a monetary aspect uh, aligned to them, you still have to be able to talk to each other to get each other on the same side. They have to agree Pubi, to can, some can you level imagine, about can something. Can you imagine if business was run on the basis of needing to be worried about talking to all of the various parties. Look, but in board, but in boards, this happens all the time. In you boards, have to lobby. All, in, you have to lobby. In, in boards, it happens all the time. And the reason why you decide in terms of boards and you pass resolutions that dictate the way in which the company shall be run. In this case, the company is the city of Johannesburg. And, so and, the, and not enough lobbying happened. No, but the agreement was already in place. You literally had a legal document that says 
Here are the terms of engagement. Here's the way in which the city is going to be run. And the entire premise on which this was broken was just because, you know, people's feelings got hurt. It's, it's kind of like, you know, people voted well, out the best uh, president in the, the United States history because of tweets. Well, well, you know, <laughs> no, really, no, I well, think well, that's well, a very simple way of we, looking we, at we, it. We, no, this touchy feely stuff around about needing to talk to people. Talking yeah. to people is what drawing up the agreement is all about. I, I just think. And that at that point thereafter, is, we have to move on. This is a portent of what may face us in you know, forthcoming national elections and national situations. We keep saying, well, the ANC is losing ground, and they are, and they're definitely losing votes in terms of people just not pitching anymore to vote for them, which means that the opposition parties proportionally increase their share of the vote. It's going to lead to a point where we're going to need coalitions on the national level. In other words, government will have to be drawn from all these parties, and there'll be agreements, very complicated ones, no doubt, which will have to be drawn up. If we can't get it right at a municipal level, what does that say about the national level that's that's to come? It's going to be fun. <laughs> right. It's going to be a wild black. We're going to be a wild ride. So somebody said to me the other day, isn't this great? And, and I, 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 it took me a moment to kind of re- reset my thinking. He said to me, this is terrific. We want a government that's gridlocked. We want them to be able to do nothing. The more laws they pass, the worse they are. So actually, <laughs> I mean, this is a very cynical point of view. But he says, I don't actually want them to be able to move because whenever they do, it's a disaster. What do you think of that argument? You know, the, <laughs> I had a, a very uh, interesting conversation with a friend last night. And uh, yes, lots of alcohol was involved. But... One of the points that he made, we were having this discussion around what um, would constitute a good system of governance. And his answer was, I thought, was actually quite profound. He said a good system of governance is where the people end up trusting the government uh, to do certain things and the government actually ends up doing those specific things. Mm -hmm. Now, if you use that as a model for what we're trying to do in our country, until you get to the stage where you're having sufficient uh, body of people out there that people have trust in. And then again, those people need to have the integrity to actually follow through on the promises that they've made. So we've got a, a situation right now where, firstly, the reason why we're not voting in numbers is because we don't trust any of the people involved. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we don't trust people involved is because when they do end up getting into these offices, they end up showing that they are untrustworthy by not following through on things that they have committed to in in terms of uh, agreements at large. So, Gareth, when we get to the situation of uh, the national elections in two years' time, look, it's going to be a bit of a basket case unless we can get to the point where enough people once again start putting their trust into particular political parties and those parties are going to be able to build a substantial enough base that they're actually able to make a difference. Now, right now, almost everyone is going backwards, except for, um, I would say, the EFF and the Freedom Front Plus, Hmm. in terms of the sheer volume of votes that are ending up being cast for various political parties. And that, to my mind, is basically a crisis of mistrust. Okay. I think both the EFF and the Freedom Front Plus have particular... Uh, narratives that they are playing to. It's a finite narrative. They can never achieve a majority based on it. But the problem that we have is that neither the ANC nor the DA, who really are the only players in the game, um, are generating an ongoing sense of increased trust. There's decreased trust all around. We need to solve that problem before we can talk about the coalitions. Isn't there also something else we can do? And Pumi, you know, you've, you've said to me week after week that you've got to take responsibility for things yourself in some way. Now, I know that in order to be happy, I have to find a balance between my expectations and reality. So maybe what we've got to do is lower our expectations. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that we should expect, we should expect government to do even less than they already do. So let's, Let's set the bar really low. Let's say we don't want anything from our government, any wild, uh, numinous, crazy, big, hairy, audacious goals. None of that. We don't want any of those promises that they go around campaigning for. We want them to say roads, electricity, water. Just three things. Those are all we want from you. 
We don't even want you to protect the borders because you're not doing that. We don't want you to have foreign policy. We don't care about that. We're not interested in anything outside of roads, electricity, and water. Or maybe we should say jobs. Maybe jobs is the only thing that we want them to campaign on. Wouldn't that make it easier? Lower the expectations? And I will put to you, Gareth, that large numbers of people in South Africa already have a very low bar for this government. Mm. Yeah, you're probably right. A, a huge part of our population already has a very low bar for this government. And and so and it's part of the reason why they have opted out yeah. of the voting. It's because the bar is already that low. And that only works for some people. It works for some people who just and the chaos works for some people and they get richer out of the chaos. And for those people that are left out of the you know the, that have been left out of the system, the chaos gets more and more, and unfortunately, it is a no-win situation. We're not going to win. The country does not win when we have those two polar opposites living next to each other. Okay, I think it's it's well overdue that we turn our eyes to the other parts of the world because we can we can be very um, insular on this show, but a lot of people get very annoyed when we talk about international politics too much. There's a balance. And uh, it's always nice to have Canton here because he brings in some interesting points of view about places that we don't often talk about. Let's start, though, in the most obvious place of all, the United States. They've got their midterm elections coming up just next month. And this is going to be a very, very difficult time for the Democrats uh, who have currently got the Congress – They've got the Senate by one vote, and they've got the, the White House, and they've been stuck. I mean, they have certainly passed enormous spending bills, um, which they can they can ratchet up as an achievement, although that's the biggest contributor to the inflation that they're currently suffering from. In the U.S., Canton, Pumi, what do you think of what's going on in American politics right now and its downstream effects on the rest of the world? And And especially, I'd like to hear what you two think of the ongoing conflict in the Ukraine and Russia and how that may be resolved, if at all. If it will be resolved. Mm. I think the U.S. politics is a wild ride at the moment. Actually, almost everywhere in the world when you look at it, right? There's so much, there's so much instability and so much chaos and so much polarization Mm. that it's, for me, watching from so far away, it's very difficult to call it. It's very difficult to, to peg where it's going to be. These midterms are going to be fascinating to watch because it does have, as we've spoken with Canton on the show before, it has ramifications like worldwide, right? It's, it's, it becomes about what Joe Biden can and cannot do. It becomes about the, the view also of the world and what's happening with the U.S. It says, Send signals to Putin, your friend, Canton. <laughs> and the chaos in the United States is it's not good. It's not good for you talk about Ukraine and Russia and what's happening well, we, over there. We got, All of that we got is Joe Biden. hanging at the balance. And I don't know what to call, I don't know which side to call I'm it sorry, because it's so wild. The world is more unstable and more unsafe and completely in chaos because of people like Joe Biden who's busy eating ice creams and telling reporters that everything is fine. The U.S. economy is strong as hell. Those are his exact words. While he's eating an ice cream and forgetting his own name and peeing in his diapers. I mean, really, is this what we is this the kind of leadership that the world deserves? Canton? Interesting stuff that's happening right now in the U.S. is there is a realignment that is taking place. And the, the more a crucial thing that we need to be taking a look at in terms of the midterm elections is not whether the Republicans end up um, winning the House and potentially the Senate as well. What we need to be looking at is which Republicans mm. end up winning. And this is a distinction that most people are not actually paying attention to because right now, the, the essentially the Republicans and Democrats, when you get down to the core issues, and the core issues in this case is supporting the military-industrial complex. They actually speak in one voice on this. So this is why the Republicans and the Democrats, almost without exception, vote for aid to Ukraine on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. Because that is where the money trail is. That is where the the military-industrial complex uh, actually goes. And so that is the core of what the American political establishment is all about. The issue that's coming up in terms of these midterms 
is that you now have a divide in the Republicans between those neoconservative Republicans and the Trump Republicans. Hmm. And <clears throat> Trump has been going around uh, the country campaigning on behalf of people that follow his agenda. And the interesting thing that has happened over the past week is Tulsi Gabbard, who you might remember was the person that I, I thought was best equipped to be president of the United States. Um, she's ended up jumping uh, ship from the Democrats. Uh, she's declared herself to be an independent. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is that she has now been going around the United States and campaigning on behalf of Republicans. Hmm. And she has been campaigning on behalf of Trump Republicans. So we have a very interesting scenario that's coming up in terms of these midterm elections, where if you have a significant number of Trump Republicans who end up uh, uh, winning um, seats in these elections, yeah. I think you're going to have a real shift that occurs in terms of, uh, of U.S. politics. If that doesn't happen, there's not going to be much of a difference. Because, you know, historically what tends to happen is that presidents will go into their first term with, you know, control of everything. Obama had that scenario uh, up front as well. So did Trump when he became uh, president. And generally they're not able to do anything useful with it simply because of the fact that they have conflicting interests that uh, that come to play. The crucial thing in terms of what Biden is doing right now, as, as far as I'm concerned, is the absolute mess that he's making of Europe. He is literally bringing Europe to its knees. Mm -hmm. Now, you look in terms of what came out from Germany and from Sweden around who was responsible for bombing the Nord Stream pipelines. And let's be very clear, they were bombed. Mm -hmm. Now we have Sweden saying that they are not going to take part in the investigations because they have information that they don't want to divulge. You have Germany now saying that they know who was responsible for destroying the pipeline. So in that scenario, we are very clear that it was not Russia who was responsible for doing so. Correct, because they because would have jumped on that was, immediately. They would have jumped on that immediately. So the logical... Um, uh, deduction that we can have in the situation is that it was the United States that was responsible. And frankly, the U.S. is one of the few powers, well, potentially in collaboration with the U.K., because they both have access to those submarines and to be able to go down there and to plant charges that will cause devastation at that level to concrete that is 1.5 meters thick. Yeah. So, so effectively what you have right now is the person, uh, the leadership in Germany, who are basically taking sides with the country, the United States, that is deliberately sabotaging the economy of Germany, the the biggest industrial production base in Europe over the past um, fifty years at least, has now been decimated, and it's never going to come back because they are never going to have the energy resources to be able to get back into the manufacturing processes. Now, how do you have a scenario where you have governments throughout Europe that are basically signing up to be bitch slapped by the U.S. and they say, you're right, I deserve that. This is a classic situation of a person who is being abused and then turns around and says, well, it's actually my fault because, you know, I didn't play by the rules of engagement. Right. So Russia has got nothing to do with any of this stuff. What is happening is that the U.S. is actively engaged in the process of destroying Europe and everything that Europe stands for. And I can't see a way out of that in the short term. Well, this is, this is something I, I really do want us to discuss is how do we get out of this conflict? Because at the moment, uh, Zelensky has a blank check from, from Joe Biden. Um, and, and he's been assured that he can, he can put his, you know, his particulars of what he'd like to see come out of this down and they will be followed to the letter. They're not giving Vladimir Putin any honorable exit from the conflict being ratcheted, ratcheted up and up and up. Um, clearly the Crimean, uh, Luhansk, Donetsk, these areas, we can come to some arrangement, but nobody wants to. And the more they push Putin into a corner, the more dangerous he's going to become. Are they actually willing, this Western alliance, are they actually willing 
to push him to the point where he uses a tactical nuclear weapon? Because that seems to me to be the only conceivable exit for Putin if you don't give him one of these more honorable and, and dignified ways out. Or am I wrong? Guys, you're wrong. Putin does not need to use a tactical nuclear weapon because the sheer volume of conventional arms that Putin has at his disposal is enough to obliterate all of Europe. Seriously. Whatever you might read in terms of uh, this particular war. And, you know, this, this is really the Schrodinger's cat of, war, of wars that we have right now. Because Putin doesn't have enough missiles. Putin is bombarding uh, people with missiles. Putin's uh, uh, economy is uh, is collapsing. Um, uh, uh, Putin must be sanctioned because his economy is getting too strong. And you keep getting all of these mixed messages. But drill down into figures that get released by the Pentagon themselves. Mm-hmm. And they say that simply based on existing stockpiles, mm. Putin is able to continue bombing Ukraine at the current extremely high levels that they have for a year <laughs> without replenishing his stockpiles. So let's, let's just park that aside for a second because recognize that if Putin decided that he wanted to flatten Ukraine, he would be able to flatten Ukraine tomorrow. He does not need tactical nuclear weapons. And the thing that Putin has committed to is he said that they have a no first use doctrine. They will not end up using nuclear weapons, unless it happens to be in defense. Okay. Now, you might well have a scenario where there's a, a false flag operation where the United States allows a tactical nuclear weapon to be detonated in close proximity uh, to Russia, where Russia will then end up reacting oh, potentially with the use of, of nukes, which is why Macron has been so terrified about this. Mm. Macron has already made it clear that even if there are tactical nuclear weapons that end up being used in the current theater, that France is not going to retaliate with nukes. And which I think is a very sensible thing for him to be doing. So, you know, going back to the question of, uh, you know, whether Russia is going to end up using nuclear weapons. No, he's not. So we're in the perpetual war because both sides will not back down. (laughs) But the that's exactly is, the point, Booby. You remember that the, thing, the idea right? is not to win for Ukraine to win the war. The idea is for the war in Ukraine to continue. Because remember in April, we had the scenario where there were discussions that were taking place in Turkey between Ukraine and the Russians with a view to finding an exit from it. Why did Ukraine pull out from those talks? Remember, it was Ukraine that pulled out. Yeah. Because Boris Johnson flew to the Ukraine and had a meeting with Zelensky where he basically said to him, listen, bitch, you are going to continue this war and we will continue the money flowing to you because that's the way it is going to be. And Zelensky basically said, yeah, boss. And that's what's happened ever since. And every time Russia escalates and takes more territory, um, you have the scenario where Zelensky says, yes, now we've got him cornered. We need more weapons. And Biden says, sure. Yeah. Look, you have 10 cities springing up throughout the United States. <laughs> in Washington, D.C., you have entire not... states that are without water. Yeah. And yet you have a president of the country sending massive amounts of money outside the country. Mm-hmm. That could actually be used for poverty alleviation back home. So but I think it was the last time we were all here in the studio together where we spoke about, were we here together? I think so, where we spoke about the, the reorganization of the world around, you know, different lines where the West, the U.S. led West, and we see what's happening in the U.K. as well. You know, and you talk about Germany and Europe, the entire economic structure being sabotaged, essentially. And all of that then gives way to an Eastern rise and superpower, you know. So when we see what China very quietly there, we also had last week, was it last week, the CCP conference, mm-hmm. you know, which um, they gave Xi think, a life. Uh, he, can, who called he, it, he can decide to stay for life now, yeah. Yeah, so somebody called it, one of these Western newspapers actually called it Mr. Xi Jinping's coronation. Yeah, <laughs> right. And... And you see them kind of very quietly creeping 
into that space. And the alignment between China, Russia, and India is also one that kind of says, hmm, you know, for South Africa here, sitting here, little South Africa, us with the price of cooking oil going through the roof, yep. what does that mean for us? And how should we then be realigning ourselves and who our friends are and who our enemies should be? Just a quick, uh, quick, a quick news flash. Just um, because these things happen while we're doing a live show, and this is a live show. Even if you're listening to us on podcast, at least you know it's all happening live. This is an interesting thing, which I'd also like your opinion on. This is just in: South Africa is going to treat Bitcoin and crypto as financial products. What does this mean for people who are either investing? Where is in that? Crypto? It's just come up now in the news. Bitcoin Magazine just published this now. And uh, this is, um, I mean, they're one of the most trusted voices in Bitcoin, and they have the the world's largest Bitcoin conference. They've just published the general notice in the Government Gazette that says, um, Declaration of a Crypto Asset as a Financial Product under the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act. What does this mean? Um, Our Reserve Bank Governor has been talking about this for, I I would say, about the past five years at least. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Kanyako is, uh, we've discussed him on the show before, I actually yeah. rate him quite highly mm-hmm. in terms of his knowledge of financial systems and sure. the task of the Reserve Bank <clears throat> uh, and so forth. Look, the devil is going to be in the detail around how this actually gets implemented. But uh, to give a very specific example, if they are going to be following what has been done in India, mm-hmm. where essentially they impose an upfront 30% tax on all profits from crypto. Right. Um, that's that's the framework that they're currently working in out there. I don't know what sort of framework we will end up having in this country. The issue in terms of crypto really is that you can have your crypto stashed away in a crypto wallet, but uh, it's the point at which you want to end up converting the crypto and making use of it as um, your fiat currency. So in other words, if I want to take my Bitcoin, and convert my Bitcoin to uh, to rands so that I'm able to mm-hmm. you know, buy a loaf for bread. That's the point at which the government gets involved because the banks that would need to effectively issue the rands in exchange uh, for passing on uh, money to the exchanges or, you know, Luna or Valo, whoever that happens right. to be. That it's at the point of that transaction taking place that they're able to do things about it. So I wouldn't uh, at at this stage be too concerned about what's happening in that space, Gareth. Okay. You know, uh, one of the useful things for me is that markets need certainty. And if you have a framework that says there's a 30% tax on profits, then people will end up living with that because that's bringing certainty. Yeah, let's just be clear that we're not. Canton is not saying that that is what they're saying in the government gazette, that there's a 30% tax on profits. It's also just defining, <laughs> it's just yes. defining crypto in terms of the law in South Africa. And for the first time, there's going to be some clarity around that. So I think there'll, there'll be some headlines out in the next couple of days about what that exactly means for cryptocurrencies in South Africa going forward. And I think any kind of clarity is probably a positive thing. So let's uh, let's watch that as it grows as an issue, um, but it's always something we but discuss uh, on the but, show. So but, it's you know, just to translating that to what we were saying to the larger uh, global scenario, mm-hmm. it's interesting for me that um, Bitcoin, in particular, has been holding relatively steady in U.S. dollar terms. Right. So it's been hovering at around that twenty thousand dollar mark now mm-hmm. for an extended period. So even though currencies around the world, well, exception of of, of two currencies have been plummeting against the dollar. Bitcoin has actually been holding its own Correct. in that space. By the way, guys, here's a trick question for you. Which is the best performing currency in the world right now? Um, <laughs> someone told me this and I, I, I can't remember now. I know the strongest currency in the world, I think, is the Kuwaiti, Kuwaiti dollar, Kuwaiti dinar. What is it? No, I'm talking, I'm talking about which has been the best performing currency no, in terms of appreciating against the US dollar. It's the Zambian Quacha. Really? Oh, I saw that. I yes. actually saw that. It has been the Zambian Quacha. It 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 uh, fairly recently overtook the ruble as the best performing currency in the world. And Unkhopotse Sekhale in the comments gets the prize. Uh-huh. What, uh, what, <laughs> what is that? what is that from, Canton? What is what is causing that? That's an interesting question, Gareth. We could probably spend a while talking about what's going on there. But 
effectively, uh, Zambia ended up uh, toppling the party of the revolution a couple of years ago. And so they've actually had good governance over the past period. Right. And their economy has been steadily clawing its way back. They've had um, uh, major investments from the, the Chinese going in there at, uh, at the level of uh, infrastructure and, and, and lots of stuff. But essentially, money that would formerly be squandered is being plowed back into the economy. And it actually shows what can happen <laughs> if you have a modicum of a good government in place. <laughs> okay. I, I, but, you I, know, fundamentally, they needed to get to the stage where they had enough of a base uh, of faith in uh, in their government to be able to, uh, uh, in a party, to be able to vote them into power. All right. Well, you know, which is really the thing we need out here. This is what uh, this is what we like having you around for, Canton, to talk about interesting things like this that we wouldn't uncover in the normal day to day headlines. All right. So tell me quickly. What... So we literally have like three. Uh, no, we literally have like thirteen minutes left. So in our thirteen minutes, we have to talk about this rising eastern kind of yes. coalition yeah. happening. Yeah. Let's okay. I think it. we'd be we'd be wrong to call it an eastern coalition. Rather think of it as uh, a coalition of what, you know, people used to call the non-aligned countries or the global south or, or, or all of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, look, BRICS as in, in its current form is going to be growing. Okay. I think that we can take it for granted that Iran is going to become part of BRICS. Okay. As a starting point. I think we are, when, um, cereal was in Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, having discussions with MBS as to how we treat the media, he also, you know, raised the subject of BRICS. And uh, and it's very clear that MBS has raised with him the question of the Saudis becoming mm-hmm. part of BRICS uh, as well. I think that we can take it for granted that Nigeria is going to become part of BRICS as well. Hmm. And the interesting thing that will come about as a result of this, that's on the assumption that the U.S. doesn't sabotage it, Mm-hmm. is that the BRICS bank will then effectively become a platform where all of the various members are able to trade in their national currencies. And that's a very interesting setup because that means that you're not relying on interchange with the U.S. dollar in order to be able to control, uh, to uh, to do trade. Yeah. But it al- it also makes things more affordable for the various countries. You see, one of the mistakes that people have been making in terms of Russia, and to go back to Russia, is people kept saying that Russia has a small economy. And the reason why they uh, they said Russia has a small economy is that they would look at the GDP of Russia based on official exchange rate conversion, which you know, effectively put Russia's GDP at, you know, Fifth or sixth mm-hmm. in the um, in the world at the time in in terms of uh, uh, official exchange rates, but the truth of the matter is that your strength in terms of an economy is your ability to be able to sustain your country. Now, if you think about during the apartheid era, the apartheid government was actually very good at becoming self sufficient. Yeah which meant that you were not actually, well, with the exception of oil, of course, which uh, we, uh, we never really had. And now, thanks to the Green Lobby, we're not going to have either. But <laughs> if you can actually recognize that Russia is able to provide for itself just about everything that's needed in order for its peer, for Russia's people to have comfortable, happy lives, they're not dependent on the way in which the rest of the global economy actually functions. And people have difficulty getting their heads around this because we've so bought into the narrative over the past 30 years of globalization and the uh, interdependence in terms of trade mm-hmm. and, and all of that kind of stuff. But what if you have a country that's literally able to produce everything that it needs? Is Russia, is Russia that country? Russia is that country because almost everything that you can think of, Russia does. Some of those things they don't necessarily do as well mm. as in other places. So, you know, microchips, for example, are one area in which uh, they've 
been largely dependent on uh, on the outside world. But now that they've been sanctioned to death, there's nothing that stops them from reverse engineering all of the chips that get produced in the Western world because they don't care about intellectual property anymore. Why should they? Because they're not part of the circle, so they don't have to play by the rules. Right, so they so, just steal know, the technology. Ahead, reverse, yeah. yeah. Uh, reverse engineer the chips. And uh, so when you have Ursula von der Leyen, the you know, president of the, uh, the European EU. Union, saying that uh, you know, the, the Russians, are uh, the economy is falling apart, they're taking chips from washing machines and turning that into controllers for, for <laughs> their missiles. You know, the, uh, I, I follow a lot of the Russian telegram groups. Yeah. They, they use the, the term Doritos quite often. Have you guys come across this? No, what is it? Doritos. The, Doritos, yeah. The sheer volume of drones that the Russians are, are producing. And let's be very clear, they're Russian drones. They're not Iranian drones. Okay. The Russians are buying drones from the Iranians, but the drones that are being deplo- deployed in their thousands in the Ukraine yeah. uh, are Russian drones. And the reason why they are called... Uh, uh, and the Russians refer to them as Doritos because the shape of these drones, <laughs> they look like a Dorito you know, chip. Uh, like the sky is is literally filled with with with, with Doritos. It's uh, it's interesting marketing. But the fact is, Russia is churning these out by the thousands, and they can they are able to do this because unlike the U.S., you know, where the U.S. talks in terms of having massive defense budgets. Russia is able to do things like go to a washing machine factory and say, okay, we're now going to turn this washing machine factory into a drone production facility. And they're not going to, they're not going to be paying $10,000 for a hammer, which is what happens in the United States when they, they end up engaging in contracts with, with Lockheed Martin and an associated question. You mentioned Ursula von der Leyen and, and the fact that we have a lot of leaders in the Western world, including Joe Biden's press secretary, who's really one of the worst that we've ever had. And I, I mean, there've been some real perlers. But these people are lying to us the whole time, saying, pay no attention to what I'm doing. Just listen to what I'm saying. Just please buy this narrative. Mm-hmm. And you see it from the EU. And the media go along with this, Canton. This is not helping the West. It's actually doing exactly the opposite. It's making people who before looked at Russia with suspicion go, well, actually, Putin has said what he's going to do, and he's done exactly what he said. And you can watch what his actions are, and they do match up to his words. Whereas every other leader in the West seems to say one thing and do another. Which do we trust? And, and I think a lot of people who would never have considered themselves fans of Vladimir Putin or Russian supporters in any which way are starting to look at the behavior of their own leaders and going, Actually, you know what? There's a lot more dishonor, it seems, going on on this side when it comes to just telling the truth than there is on the Russian side. And not that they're necessarily backing Putin now as a result of that, but they're certainly not trusting their own media outlets or their own leaders. Well, we've seen the overall result of that in terms of the fall off in support for for mainstream media. Hmm. And it, it, it's the reason why um, Joe Rogan literally has more people listening to his show than all of the mainstream news bulletins put together. Right. Right. It's, uh, it, it really is as simple as that. I mean, why, why are we able to have this platform of yours actually thriving in the way it is, Gareth? It's because of that credibility factor that, you know, people come here and they know that we don't have all the answers, but at least the stuff that we're putting out here is not spin. But don't these guys, again, it's fine to refer to us and Joe Rogan and everything, Pumi, Canthan, doesn't it bother you that these people continue to spin and lie? Haven't they realized it's not working? I mean, someone in corporate media has to go, they're not all stupid people. Someone has to go, hang on, we are losing market share daily. We are, our credibility is at an all-time low. We have zero support in any of the polls that anyone has around trust in media. We've got to do something about this, or are they completely captured? Oh, people are just, uh, they're keeping themselves in a job for the most part. A lot of people are keeping themselves in the job for as long as they can. Job might and not they're be taking there their money they out. The job will, they, not, will not be there yeah, in a year. They're taking their money out, Garrett. Jesus. Where, they, where they can, they're taking their money out. It's a bit of a, you know, a microcosm of what's happening in the country, in South Africa as a whole, right? So people mm. who can milk the system, milk the system and take the money out. That's what they're doing.
No, people are not altruistic. <laughs> Yeah. People are not altruistic. They do not do this for the betterment of everybody else, right? So for as long as it is working, they will keep it working and where they can get their money out, they can get their money out. Well, let, let's talk about the shifts that are actually happening. Okay, so um, yeah. Kanye West buying parlor. Yes. Let, let, let's just talk about that. Let's talk about that <laughs> that very briefly. And, of course, uh, the Twitterati have been very disdainful in terms of uh, this action. And uh, and they say Pala is actually kind of, you know, completely uh, uh, irrelevant. Interesting thing is that I actually do spend time on Pala as well. I almost never post there, but uh, I do follow conversations that are going on there. I follow Pala, I follow Getter, I follow Gab. Mm-hmm. And all of these are independent platforms that basically came up because of the fact that Twitter is the cesspool that it is, and more importantly, that Twitter ends up censoring information that, you know, most people are there you know, for in the first place. Right. So we've had the systematic growth of, of all of these platforms. I really don't know what's been happening in terms of Trump's platform because I haven't been able to uh, to get onto it. I, I did, um, you know, hack myself a tunnel. What's it to, called? His is called uh, what? Truth, get, truth social or something. Truth, truth. Truth Social, yes. Yeah. But uh, if you if you go to the Google Play Store, if you go to um, the uh, uh, the Apple App Store, mm-hmm. you will see that Truth Social continues to be one of the most downloaded apps on both those platforms. So whatever opinions we might have in terms of what Trump is up to on his own platform, he has been steadily building his own platform. In fact, all of those platforms, we're talking about uh, about Gab, which Gab, by the way, is filled with uh, a bunch of religious fanatics and some of the stuff that they say is actually quite scary. But it makes for great uh, uh, viewing, really, just to to watch the way in which uh, the conspiracy theories flow. And, of course, the interesting thing is that yesterday's conspiracy theories end up becoming today's fact. Correct. So, you know, if we look in terms of... Uh, um, the ejectable drug that shall not be named because of deplatforming on YouTube. But uh, <laughs> really, all of the uh, the stuff that the conspiracy theories uh, theorists were saying uh, uh, up front are now suddenly emerging in public hearings as, you know, yes, it, it's true. We knew at the stage that it was not effective. So all of these platforms have actually been growing. I think that that's overall a good thing for the world at large because it is now putting pressure on the former mainstream media to get their act together. And uh, But the most powerful uh, media source in the world right now, guys, I can't say this strongly enough, mm-hmm. is actually Telegram. Telegram. Because you have – it's Telegram because you have direct access to all of the various viewpoints directly from the horse's mouth. So I get – all of the official uh, announcements that come from the Ukrainian government, I get all of the official announcements that come from the Russian government. Okay. And I'm able to actually compare notes between those two and to get a sense of, uh, of, of who's actually, um, <clears throat> you know, potentially spinning. Interesting thing, though, is that nearly all of the stuff that comes out from the Russian governmental sources mm-hmm. is factual. So it's factual at the level of, they say, um, we used, uh, we dropped so many weapons on this particular place and we took out, um, the following number of, uh, of targets, which included, you know, a power station, a bridge or whatever. Um, yeah. I'm just making this up right now. Um, the Ukrainian sources are generally pushing an emotional narrative. Right. So it's, uh, this is a five year old girl you know, whose, uh, whose body was pulled from the wreckage of, um, uh, of a Russian airstrike in Kiev. Sure. So, but, you know, I, I, I think all of the information that's coming out is by and large factual because, yes, they are, you know, there's probably truth in the fact that this was a five-year-old girl's body that was pulled from the wreckage. But I'm not dependent on um, Daily Maverick, for instance, you know, who are so firmly in the pockets of the United States narrative uh, around this and, you know, buying it to the whole Putin is losing uh, uh, scenario uh, consistently. I don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, I'll go to the Daily Maverick in order to see 
what they are doing around their investigations into corruption, and they tend to do a good job on that. Right. And then I can safely ignore the stuff that they are putting out in terms of international politics. So, Gareth, going back to your point, um, is there going to be a realignment? Are the mainstream media going to realize that uh, they are missing out? Well, you know, Trevor Noah is gone for a good reason. Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it is changing. We know the, you, you, know the reason. It's a, it's a, it's a 75% drop in ratings. Yeah. Um, CNN, ever since um, the merger between Warner Brothers and, uh, and Discovery, CNN, um, remember that you had CNN Plus, which was the streaming platform. Yes. Which, which they had poured hundreds of millions of dollars into. And the new management came in and they shut it down. They said it's never going to work. Right. You know, we're just taking the loss on the chin. They shut it down. They've been firing all of the woke commentators that have been uh, a hallmark of CNN uh, for the longest sure. time. Does it mean that they're going to be able to claw their way back? I don't know the answer to that. But what is true is that there is that shift that is happening in in significant parts of the world. Um, I don't know to what extent there is going to be a pushback at the same level that has taken place through most of the world in trying to shut down sources that come from outside the country. So, you know, it's almost impossible to get access, direct access to Russian news sources, you know, other than a handful of streaming platforms right now. Well, what I'm, simply ta- because what I'm taking from this is that you should, we should all get onto Telegram if we want news. <laughs> I think that yes, no. we should all be on all Telegram right. if, if, if we are looking, if we are looking for news from primary sources, right. which doesn't necessarily mean that we can trust those primary sources. Mm. But I'm far more likely to trust a statement that comes from the Russian Ministry of Defense than a statement that comes from Pravda, which is a propaganda outlet. Right. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's a distinction that, uh, that I'm trying to, uh, trying to draw. If we look in terms of the Pentagon briefings, uh, the documents that they put out uh, uh, directly on their various websites, take those as a source rather than the way in which CNN ends up spinning it. it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and uh, and and do the same in terms of the economy. I'm afraid I'm going Especially. to I'm going to have to uh, stop us here because otherwise we will run on and we'll talk for another hour without realizing how quickly time has gone by. Um, I'm sorry that um, Popalatse didn't um, didn't stay and we couldn't get a line a bit clearer, but we will get her back in studio soon. Pumi, thank you very much as always. Kanthan, thank you very much as always, and we will see you guys soon. I will be back tomorrow morning, six a.m. Have an excellent Thursday. Cheers, everybody. Cliffcentral.com.